Anyone here sell anything on Etsy? I can't see too many hands. Say something. I hear about a few people. All right, has anyone here bought anything on Etsy? Okay, I would, I would expect so. Probably almost everybody has bought something on Etsy. So uh, Etsy, as a startup, raised funding from some of the best venture capitalists in the world, from Index, from Union Square Ventures, from Austin, now Austin's Jim Breyer, when he was at Excel. And uh, Etsy has undergone significant growth and transformation, expanding its reach and product offerings while maintaining its commitment to sustainability and social responsibility. Josh is also somewhat of a polymorph as far as the entrepreneurs you know, and the executives in the rooms go. He's excelled both in startups, in scale-ups, in turnarounds, and in the largest corporations in the world. He founded Evite in the first dot-com boom and sold it to IAC. Has anyone here ever gotten an Evite? <laughs> I would expect, and I still get Evites, lots of them. He was brought in to run Shopping.com and then Skype as CEO. He then served as president of consumer products and services at American Express, and he's currently on the board of Shake Shack, which we have a Shake Shack in Austin now, also, but that he's uh, which also shares our Capital Factory's love about experience, creating great experiences. Now, I know he's heard I've heard him talk about. So Josh Silverman is the CEO of Etsy. Welcome back to the Austinpreneur Podcast. For this special episode, our CEO, Josh Bayer, sat down with the CEO of Etsy, Josh Silverman, live on stage at Capital Factory for our all-access community members. Josh Silverman has over two decades leading consumer technology companies and scaling global marketplaces. His entrepreneurial journey started when he co-founded Evite, and before his current role as chief exec at Etsy, Josh was also the CEO of Skype and president of consumer products and services at American Express. Today's episode of Austinpreneur is brought to you by American Express. As your startup grows from one stage to the next, you need a financial services company who can offer a wide-ranging, flexible suite of business tools and benefits that evolve with you and your business. Whether you're just starting out or scaling to new heights, American Express can provide you with long-term support and resources that you deserve. American Express is currently extending a special welcome offer for Capital Factory members and Austinpreneur listeners. After you spend $1,000 on eligible purchases within the first 30 days of getting your American Express corporate card, business gold card, business platinum card, or the plum card, you'll earn a $1,000 statement credit. Terms do apply, and you can learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Capital Factory. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. This is so great to have you all here for our first in-person ever Austinpreneur episode, and super excited to have my really good friend Josh Silverman here to do it with me. So let's give him one more round of applause. It's so great to have you. So let's start, Josh, with what is Code Nation, and why is the CEO of Etsy here at South by Southwest EDU to talk about it? What's going on with Code Nation? 
Well, first, thank you for having me, and so impressive. I just got the tour. I've been hearing about Capital Factory for years, but so awesome to see what you've built. It's really remarkable and really amazing, so thank you. The CEO of Code Nation is actually here right now, Ron Summers, so it's great to have Ron here. We're about 10 years old, and why am I talking about it? Well, let's see, my, you know, my, my brother's also here. Our grandfather arrived in the United States as an economic refugee fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe with no money at all and worked in the sweatshops his whole life and grew up in public housing. And the New York City public school system was able to help my father get all the way to Brooklyn College, one of the City University of New York schools, and then into medical school and pulled our family into the middle class. And so that, you know, the opportunity to provide opportunities for others to enter the middle class, I think, is a very important way to give back. And one of my learnings is, first, if you don't study computer science by the time you graduate high school, you're exceptionally unlikely to study computer science in college. And it kind of makes sense, right? The first two years of college, you're taking a lot of required courses. And if you're not already familiar with coding, coding seems really scary and a really great way to get a C or a D. That's not a great idea, right? So maybe you'll take it when you're a junior. And by the time you're a junior, it's too late. There's just too many requirements. You need to start as a freshman. So giving people familiarity with computer science is super important. And you won't be surprised, or maybe you will be surprised to learn that many high schools in America do not offer any real exposure to computer science. That is certainly true in under-resourced schools. So if we want to provide more economic opportunity to more people, if we want more people to be included in this tech revolution that we have, and if we want to have more diverse communities included in this revolution, we really need to be partnering with the public school systems. It's not enough to put an education online and hope that people will take it upon themselves because for many people in these under-resourced communities, the idea that they could get a job in tech is as foreign as anything. So the other big learning for me is the importance of social capital. Knowing someone who actually works in tech, seeing that there's someone who is in fact like you in, in, in certain ways is absolutely essential to seeing that as an aspiration you can have, getting real exposure and actually getting access to careers in tech. So what we do is we take a, a number of people who code for a living and we put them in the classroom with the students and those volunteers teach a year of computer science to, to our high school students. And it is a true inflection point in the lives of many. The average household of the, fa of the students we serve has you know, an income of less than $30,000 a year. And those students could, even upon graduating high school, just go to a four or five month boot camp and be earning $60,000 a year. Or they may choose to go to a four-year university, get a computer science degree, and earn you know, much more immediately out of college. The point is, it's a real gateway to having a life of choice, and I think that's absolutely essential, and I think one of my learnings in this journey has been that the public school systems are not going to be able to solve this alone. If you simply take a teacher and train her how to teach computer science, she can't provide the social capital to that student, and if she gets good enough at it, she can earn three times as much in the private sector, and she often leaves. Private industry itself can't solve the problem because we don't have access to the students. So it's really about how do we bring government, private sector, and the, the public school systems together. And that's, I think, the secret sauce or what Code Nation does especially well. Wow. Yeah, there, there are obviously a lot of different groups trying to help kids at different levels in schools. And it seems like that finding that mix of how do you effectively work with the schools, get in the schools, seems to be the hardest part. So figuring that out is really important. You know, one of the things I told you as we were giving the tour that Capital Factory is all about 
connecting people together. And so of course we always, I always ask everybody in the elevator, like, who do you need to meet? Who can we introduce you to? And I asked you that, like, so, so with, you know, with Ron being here for South by, with you being here for South by, who does Code Nation need to meet? Who do you guys need yeah. to meet that can help you? Thank you for asking the question. So I'm here because tomorrow we'll be presenting a panel on computer science education in high schools and what do we need to do to provide computer science access to a great many more students. So there's a panel tomorrow at South by Southwest Ed. And really, it's about increasing the exposure of Code Nation. You know, I think we've been incredibly focused on program quality. We're teaching about 2,500 students this year in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago in, what, maybe 60 or 70 schools. So the program really works, and now it's about raising our visibility and, frankly, raising our funding so we can reach a lot more students. So South by Southwest, I know you've had a huge role in helping that to grow, and we think it's a great platform to shine a little more light on Code Nation. Awesome. Well, I hope that this is one more way to get the word out, and I hope that anybody that's out of South by tomorrow can go check it out again if you want to hear some more of Josh on stage there, too. So, all right. Well, of course, we are all focused on the entrepreneur, and you have such a – it's so funny. I asked him about this leading up to this, and I don't think he even thinks of himself as an entrepreneur anymore, and he's so entrepreneurial. But it goes back to – like I remember I started my first company in 1996. Like It was kind of that, that around the same time of the first dot-com boom. And Evite was like – it was one of what I think of as the original dot-com, like first internet companies Like that was like a real – thing on the internet that like worked better and was faster and everybody used and everybody knew and again like we we still all use today so tell me like a little bit about like first even before like how you started it just like what was the world like then the tech and the funding world when you started evite and in somewhat of comparison to today well i think maybe what's kind of relevant is just capital was really abundant really abundant which made it incredible. like it was a year and a half ago abundant Yeah, it wasn't like raising money for startups at the time, so it's hard for me to compare and contrast. But I will say that after everyone told us that Evite was an absolutely terrible idea, because we were trying to invent something that didn't exist without the internet, and so no one could visualize it until we launched it. So we, you know, we had $30,000, which we lived on, four of us lived on $30,000 for six months to get the prototype launched. But once we got the prototype launched, and we got a VC interested in it, we were hoping to raise $3 million at a $6 million valuation, which I thought would have been like awesome, awesome, awesome. And we ended up raising like $8 million at a 19 or $20 million valuation. And as soon as we raised that money, all the VCs started coming and saying, let me give you $20 million, let me give you $40 million. So my, although I wasn't raising money in 2021, my hunch is that's kind of what it felt like in 2021. So it's an amazing time to raise money and a terrible time to build a business. Terrible time to build a business because every single person, everyone with a good idea and almost everyone with a bad idea was getting funded. You know, a lot of the really great businesses, if you look at the lasting businesses of my generation of the internet era, you know, they were 2002, 2003, 2004 vintage. They were like after the bust had happened. The companies then that were growing and succeeding were the ones that really were lasting. Wow. You know, I've certainly lived through that and I have thought about that issue, but I haven't heard it said that way of it was a great time to raise money and a terrible time to run a business. And, and I think that's a really great way to characterize it. It's really interesting. So how many times, not exactly, but just like, like 
rough number, like thinking about it, like between now and then, like we talked about, you know, a year and a half ago, like how many times in between then was that, did that cycle go? I flew three or four times? Three or four now, right? Yeah. Because then we had the financial crisis in 2008 where, yeah. you know, many people thought the world was ending and obviously the pandemic then. What's so interesting to me is most of the employees who work for me, and our average, it's, we're not like a 25-year-old at median age, but we're like a 32 or a 33-year median age. One of the things I realized was most of the people who work for me have never lived through a recession. It feels so scary, but a recession is like the rising of the sun and the moon. You know, recessions are cycles, and they happen, and they come, and they go, and and you know, normally I used to think of it as something that would last for like 10, 20 years. Like you know, it's like a three, it's like a two years weird thing, you know, yeah. three year thing. Like, Typically, recessions like, happen every seven years. Is the average cycle? We went eleven or something years without a recession, which is remarkable. And typically, the actual recessionary period is about six months. Yeah. Now, you know, past isn't always prologue, and we don't know, but they tend to be very healthy. They're very painful. I'm not trying to make light of the fact that you know some people lose their jobs, and that's painful for them, and I don't want to in any way minimize that, but for the economy as a whole, it's a healthy part of the cycle, and I think many of us recognize that things were overhyped. And the other thing I will say is, I think if you look at, you know, the size of the layoffs and the scale layoffs, maybe this is part of the conversation here, it feels so scary. One of the conversations I have with my team is, you know, people are terrified, and we're not in the process of doing a layoff at Etsy. I feel really good about that. Nonetheless, my team is terrified. But if you look at, you know, the level of layoff that Facebook is doing or, you know, Microsoft or others, they're rolling the clock back. Twitter. What's that? Twitter. Twitter's a little different. Most of these companies are rolling the clock back like nine months. They're going back to the number of employees that they had in like 2021. In March of 2000, when the internet bubble burst, I think tech sector employment went down by like 50%. I think tech sector employment's down like 4% or 5% right now. It's, and, you know, I have a wide community of friends, all of us doing tech, and everybody I can think of you know, landed on their feet, you know, some in tech, some found careers in other areas and have, you know, the vast majority had really fulfilling lives and, you know, we got through it. So Capital Factory started in 2009, right after the 2008 market crash. And as we tell that story, it's always about this feeling of the 2008 doom and gloom, the Sequoia letter. Do you remember the Sequoia letter? Yeah. Like it was the, they sent out this kind of like public letter. Yeah. It's all over. Everyone's going to die. And, and it was the end of the world. And it felt, and I, and I just remember feeling so, so helpless. Like, what can we do? You know? And so what do we do? It was like, well, like we can go start a bunch more companies. And at some level, it was like, you know, when's a better time to start a company? Right? There's nowhere to go but up. There's not a lot of competition for talent. There's going to be growth. You're going to be able to ride that wave. And like you said, it, you know, in many ways, as an investor, people ask us, like, do, is it hard to invest in the uptime or the downtime? Like, honestly, I don't really care. Like, I think we can do well in all those markets. But I actually think it's actually, I like it better. I don't want to say it's, like, super tight, but, like, not when it's crazy like yeah. before. That doesn't feel good. One of the things I've learned, I love constraints. Yeah. I love constraints. They Constraints are beautiful, and they make you more elegant. Solving a problem with constraints is essential, right? And they make you more elegant. And I think in a time when capital is more constrained, you will find a more elegant way. You'll be much more focused on what your customers actually need and what is the shortest path to the goal. What we spend a lot of time with at Etsy is what we call the vital few. What are the fewest things we need to do in order to achieve the goal? 
which sounds really simple, but you need to then spend time thinking about, well, what is the goal? How crisply can I define the goal? It's a very important job of a leader, right? How crisply can I define success and how clearly can I define constraints? I didn't come up with that Ken Chenault, who I had the privilege of working for at American Express, came up with that. You know, the role of a leader is to define success and constraints. I would add a third, which is and then make sure you have the right people in the right place on the team. But if you do those three things well, I think you've really done a lot. And the constraints piece is beautiful. Yeah. In a world of abundance, constraints are even more important. How, what are some ways that you instantiate that, like, that comes to life at Etsy, those constraints? We really, the atomic unit at Etsy is what we call the squad. And I bet many people work with squads here, right? So a squad's got, call it 10 people. It's going to be six or seven engineers, a designer, a product manager, and an analyst, roughly. And every squad at Etsy is given one customer problem to solve with one financial metric and one time frame. And, you know, typically a time frame's a year. But an example of a customer metric might be like, shorten the time for a package to arrive by a day and a half. And you'd say, well, Etsy doesn't have warehouses, and we don't control fulfillment, so how could we do that? Task a team with, let's think, without in any way reducing the humanity of Etsy. You're not allowed to in any way reduce the humanity of Etsy. And the teams, and this is kind of a real example, you know, the, and, and by the way, in doing that, we want you to unlock at least $50 million a year of annualized gross merchandise sales. So what we mean by that is, like, how much our sellers have sold is gross merchandise sales. So you have one year. You've got to shorten time of arrival and do it in a way that unlocks $50 million a year of GMS. And that team will say things like, oh, gosh, you know, we noticed that many of our sellers pad their processing time. They say it's going to take them a week to put something in a mail, but in the mail, but 95% of the time they do it in five days. Could we coach them to shorten their processing time to five days? Or, you know, for many search queries, we have many items that are very similar, could our search algorithm prioritize the ones that are closer to the buyer such that they will arrive faster and have lower environmental footprint? And so the team can do anything they want, anywhere in the experience. They are unbounded in the how. And, and then once a month, every team reports out on progress to go. Oh, and by the way, they ship, you know, the average squad ships twice a week. They're not asking for permission. They don't need to like, they just come up with an idea and ship it. When they ship it, typically it goes to 50% of the entire audience at Etsy. And so usually within about five days, we can see statistically significant whether or not that actually improved conversion rate such that our sellers sold more stuff. And so we have you know, pretty good data on exactly what the productivity of that squad was. Did they achieve their goal? And you know, we've got tens of squads. And it's very rare that a squad is exactly on track, some ahead, some behind. But every month, every squad reports out. And as a portfolio, that portfolio really generally produces really well. So the constraint we start with is at the beginning of the year, in our planning cycle, we say, what are the customer problems we have the most heart for? What are the things we think we can improve the most? And how many people do we have? We've got enough for 50 squads. Let's deck three against this problem, four against that problem, six against that problem, and do it in a way where we will produce X billion dollars of incremental GMS as a result of their efforts. And that's pretty much what we tell the product and eng team. You know, the leadership team agrees on that. And then the eng, product and eng teams partner to come up with everything else. How do they want to solve those problems? Where are they most excited? So they have a lot of freedom to be entrepreneurs, to invent ideas, but there's still accountability and clarity around what success looks like. 
So I, I love that. That's a great example. And I'm curious, like everything about that to me was very, we're a product company, you know, like, and we're doing iterative releases and like, you know, this is like your software, those were software, software development squads, right? Is there another way it kind of like works into like the, what about the people who have to like keep the website running every day or yeah. like, you know, or like the different parts of the business that, you know, the operating it, not the people that don't get to work on improving it. Yeah. So super important, all the infra teams who also have different, they all have goals because without a goal, without, if you're not keeping score, you have no idea who's winning. <laughs> so it's super important. So we have what we call DevX teams. So the teams that, that, that improve the developer experience. And they're looking at things like the release time, like from the time I try to, what is the push queue like? So we observe that like for an engineer to push a release, it takes an hour and a half for that release to, to go live. And that's a lot of wasted productivity. We have a lot of engineers and they're pushing multiple times a week. So we'd set a goal, like can we make the push queue go from 90 minutes to 70 minutes this year? And that will unlock like 30 engineers worth of productivity for Etsy, so we'll goal that team. You know, there's obviously some people for whom uptime is their, is their success metric, and people for whom security is their success metric, but for many people, it's how can they enable the rest of the team to be more productive, and we find ways to, to measure that too that are fun and exciting for those teams. All right, so I wanna go back in, at, at some point to the, the early stuff with Evite and Skype, but sticking with Etsy for a minute, why? At the time that you chose to join Etsy, you had done so many things. You've been an entrepreneur, you've been at the very beginning. You've come in and I don't know if you'd call a Skype a turnaround or a, you know, you kind of come in as, you know, you weren't the founder, you come into the CEO, your job is to take it to the next point. You've done that more than once. You've come into Amex as a, you know, senior executive, you know, must have been a very different environment. Why at that point were you like, okay, the next step is I want to go run Etsy? What are all the, what are the trade-offs you're thinking about when like you kind of could do anything? I mean, it was, a, that wasn't, so I was on the board of Etsy and. You're already pretty familiar with that company. I'd only been on the board for six yeah. months. Okay. I wouldn't say I was very familiar with that. Oh, that's like a, that's like we're dating you to become the CEO. Yeah. Sort of. We've had a couple of dates. I've done that before. Yeah. So Etsy has always passionately believed that we could be a good citizen and a good business. However, at the time that I became CEO, you know, the company had been public for about 18 months. Things had been going very badly. And the stock was way down. Growth was really decelerating. Costs were really going up. And there was a perception that Etsy was failing because it had tried to be a good citizen. And that just felt like a really untenable thing to allow to happen. We had activists. We had a lot of things. And Etsy was Going anti-ESG movement? I, Etsy was in danger of becoming a poster child for anti-ESG. Not because it didn't have the right intentions, but because it had bad execution. And actually the reason that Etsy wasn't doing well had nothing to do with our social impact efforts, quite the opposite. You know, I passionately believe that being a good citizen is part and parcel with being a good company, being a good business. We just had bad execution. And it just didn't feel didn't feel tenable to allow the world to think that of Etsy. The reasons not to do it is that coming in, whoever was going to take the job as CEO, if they were going to be successful, they were going to have to do a lot of very hard and unpopular things, lay off a lot of people, raise prices on sellers, reorganize the company in ways that were very painful for a lot of employees, and it was most likely going to fail. 
Uh, we, we, what the world didn't know at the time is, I mean, our stock, we had a takeover offer at $14 a share from outside investors. That was not public. But we were kind of had our back against the wall. We'd have to sell the company at what felt like a very low price. And so, you know, whoever is going to be the next CEO has to go and I think do a lot of really hard things. It will probably fail and then you'll have to sell the company anyway, except now you're the one who went and did all mean things. <laughs> you're like the mean bad person and it failed anyway. So why do it? I don't know. I just, I mean, I love what Etsy does. I really love what Etsy does. If Etsy went away, I just think there's millions of people out there for whom it would really have a very meaningful, very negative consequence. Wow. Today's episode of Austinpreneur is brought to you by American Express. As your startup grows from one stage to the next, you need a financial services company who can offer a wide-ranging, flexible suite of business tools and benefits that evolve with you and your business. Whether you're just starting out or scaling to new heights, American Express can provide you with long-term support and resources that you deserve. American Express is currently extending a special welcome offer for Capital Factory members and Austinpreneur listeners. After you spend $1,000 on eligible purchases within the first 30 days of getting your American Express corporate card, business gold card, business platinum card, or the plum card, you'll earn a $1,000 statement credit. Terms do apply, and you can learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Capital Factory. If you, if, it's, if you can go back that far, like, how is that different than... What was Skype like? Like, well, that wasn't the same, thing, right? <laughs> Skype was complicated in a different way. Yeah. I, why one of the things I've said in, is... Why did you jump, jump into that? Almost every job I've gotten because they couldn't find anyone more qualified to take it. And I do think there's something in there for folks who are, you know, if you can find what looks like a big pile of mess and you think there's a pony in there, like, you get an unreasonable amount of responsibility. So I'd done a couple of small turnarounds for eBay and sort of earned my stripes, but they had paid, you know, I think close to $4 billion to buy Skype and things were going very badly. And I was running a much smaller business for eBay at the time. And so they looked for like three or four months to try to find anyone more qualified to run Skype and they couldn't find anyone. And they finally sort of said, all right, we'll give it to you. I was dying to go run Skype. I was so excited to go run Skype. And it's because... You know, the press on Skype was that eBay had overpaid, it was a stupid acquisition, it's not worth $4 billion, you dummies, when are you going to sell it? you got to get rid of it. It's a dead weight around your neck. It's like all the financial press. But Skype was having a really powerful impact on the lives of millions and millions of people. And there's got to be value in there. It felt like what a privilege to go get a, to run a company that's having this kind of impact on the world, and there's going to be a way to make the financials work. And so many of the problems were culture problems, focus problems, things that kind of felt, things that felt solvable. Like I didn't have fix. a plan. I didn't know how, but it felt like there's really talented people there. There's got to be a better way to get them to work together to achieve amazing outcomes with this incredible brand. So I'm just going to bet on myself that we can try and this amazing team that we can come up with something. And so now it's you know, so interesting. When you look back at Skype, do you see that as like the precursor to, to Zoom, to Discord, to like, like 
well, in some ways, was that part of its destiny? It like, should have. Maybe I can do a little storytelling around Skype if that's good. Let's kind of do some storytelling. Let me tell you, like, some of the things that went really well about Skype, and then some of why did we not, why did Skype not achieve its next destiny? So, first, when I got there, you know, Skype was free phone calls. It was the whole world can talk for free was the tagline, and it was phone calls. Can I just say, I, my memory of Skype was it was like, it, I don't know if this makes any sense, but it was like the legitimate Napster. Like yeah. it was like Skype and Napster. Kind of like Napster. Napster was like right. this like movement like thing taking over that was way better, but like was totally illegitimate. And yeah. Skype was also this like super disruptive. Like suddenly, like you could like phone calls in the other part of the world were like the most expensive things in the world, and suddenly it was free, and it was just it was so disruptive. But it wasn't. But it was legit. You know, like it wasn't yeah. this. Anyway, sorry, that was my. Well, they kind of come out of the same embryo actually, because they're both based on peer to peer technology. No, exactly. And yeah. we're going to get there with Discord actually, because that's really important for your question about why did Skype not become the discord of the future. But so <clears throat> at the time, Skype was all about free phone calls. And the team had been talking about Skype 4.0. Skype at the time was Skype 3.0, and it was a small, thin panel on the, that, that ran on just a, a part of your a desktop, and the iPhone hadn't launched yet. So it, it was just on part of your desktop. And, and so the idea was Skype 4.0 is going to change the world. It's going to be amazing. It's all that I had been told is Skype 4.0 is going to change the world, and the Skype team had talked about that. And, and Meg had been telling Wall Street, we've got this new thing called Skype 4.0, and it's going to blow your mind. Meg was CEO of... Uh, Meg Whitman was the CEO of eBay, which owns Skype. Sorry. Ancient history now. Some people weren't born. I'm just, I'm just... It's my own little history <laughs> test. I'm trying to no, fill it Thank you. So I show up at, e at Skype, and I get the leaders of Skype 4.0 in a room. And so the head of product, the head of engineering, the head of QA, the head of design, you know. And I ask each of them one question. What are we solving for with Skype 4.0? And there were eight people in the room, and I got eight answers. And they were evenly divided. Some of them thought we would never ship it. We were just so dysfunctional that we couldn't ship something this big. And the other half thought that we should never ship it because it was a terrible idea and it was going to kill the company. So those were like the two. So what was Skype 4.0? It turned out that the big idea was let's take over the entire frame of your window because we can show ads. And that could be a good revenue opportunity to hit the earnout that the prior management team had been driving to. So like, wow, where's the customer need in that? I'm not really sure. So. It's like Zoom with ads. <laughs> yeah. So the job, how do you define success for the team? And so went and talked to a bunch of customers. And the thing that I heard, like none of them said it in this way. But the thing that my team and I heard, like what I intuited when I talked to person after person was, you know, like why does Skype matter to you? Because Skype was very emotional to our customers. They really cared. It, was, it wasn't talking for free. It wasn't about saving money. It was about being together when we can't be in the same room. You know, I, I remember talking to a service member who was serving in, in, in Iraq who talked about still maintaining a relationship with his wife and his child because of Skype. That couldn't have happened otherwise. I remember talking to grandparents who talked about their relationship with their grandchildren, which they couldn't have if it weren't for Skype. That's what Skype was. So we looked at a several different ideas together for what could Skype 4.0 be, and we decided video was that Skype should be about being together when you can't be in the same place, not free phone calls, and video's time was coming. More and more laptops shipped with a camera built in, 
more and more people had broadband access, and we think video's time is now. And by the way, you need the whole interface. You know, that's why you need a whole, that's a customer reason why you shouldn't just be on the left pane. So I wrote a one paragraph mission statement for that team that you will ship Skype 4.0 by December 31st. Video will be the centerpiece. We will measure success based on engagement. Nothing in the company is allowed to get in your way. Any resource you want has to make itself available for you. And one paragraph, four sentences. And that provided tremendous clarity. And then the team, wonderful team with amazing designers, incredible engineers. You know, we ended up shipping Skype 4.0 and people hated it for the first two or three weeks because it was like a dramatic change in their UI. And then they loved it by like week four and we saw all the metrics go in the right direction and it had a really big impact. So why did Skype not become Discord? Well, or WhatsApp. I would even say WhatsApp. You know, Telegram. Skype should have. Yeah, exactly. Skype should be WhatsApp. I mean, chat Signal. was actually, even at the time, by far the most used thing on Skype actually was chat. Well, the original founding idea of Skype was actually that peer-to-peer -peer was a revolutionary technology that could solve many of the world's biggest problems. And one instantiation of that was communications. And so let's take peer-to-peer -peer communications and let's use that for solving communications and that, that became Skype. And so we recruited some of the best peer-to-peer -peer engineers in the world. I mean, really like absolute genius mathematicians and scientists who were really passionate about this, created this. At the time that I showed up to run Skype in 2008, you know, and I'm not an engineer for better or worse. And so I ask a lot of very naive questions like, why is peer-to-peer -peer technology good? And what I heard was, well, we don't need all the servers. You know, we can directly go from client to client, and well, I don't need a large bank of servers. And I said, well, but the cost of servers is actually going down, and like, how big a benefit is that, actually? Oh, it's amazing, it's incredible, like, no, it's world-changing, it's really important. So I asked my finance people, like, can you actually run the numbers for me? Like, how much are we saving? And the answer was, like, in about two... The savings were shrinking to the point where in about three years, it would only be saving us like $10 million a year. And, and I wish I had pushed harder on that, honestly, because the entire momentum of the company was, you know, we only care about peer-to-peer. -peer. We want, like, the simple fact of questioning whether peer-to-peer -peer was the right solution to get to the outcome was really an incredibly revolutionary question that made me exceptionally unpopular. It was a question nobody wanted to answer. And... In the end, I think it really held the company back in a massive way, and I wish I had pushed a lot harder because it turns out that, well, peer-to-peer -peer does some good things. It also has a lot of artifacts. In asynchronous communication, it's really often bad. So, for example, for those of you who used Skype in 2008 and 2000, you, were, you might remember that you send a, a Skype text message to someone, and they open it on their desktop, and then later, when they're on another platform, and they'll, that will still show up as unread. That was an artifact of the fact that as things propagate through the peer-to-peer -peer network, it's much harder to tell things like, has this message already been read or not? If you just had everything go through a central server, that problem is very trivial. So, so we were too slow to shift. We allowed dogma to define, and we confused dogma with strategy. And so one of the things that I try to keep a very keen eye on coming into any company is where's the dogma? And usually hiding under that dogma is a giant pot of gold. 
You know, I think that's so insightful. In just in many other cases I've just seen in my own experiences and companies that we've worked with, in personal growth, like sometimes the thing that gets you there isn't the thing that takes you to the next level. Yeah, and inspecting, especially for companies that have been successful, all that success bias, one of the most important things I think for like someone like me who's come into a company that's had a really good first act to try to unlock a second act is just differentiating the because ofs and the in spite ofs. You know, if the company's been successful, you attribute all of the success to everything you've done thus far. And in fact, you've been successful because of some things and in spite of others. And the art and science of differentiating those two unpacks a ton of value. We can do an offsite about Capital Factory some other day. Yeah, we're, we're Capital Factory's about 12 years old. We've got lots of because of shows right. and artifacts and other right. things that we're trying to figure out. Yeah, what's really the secret sauce? You know, you're humble enough and you ask a lot of questions. And I think, and from what I know of you, you always keep an open mind and you're happy to be challenged. And I think that's super important. Oh, well, thank you. So how do you keep that from happening to Etsy? You know, I think obsessing over customer needs and where can we do better when you walk the halls of etsy well we don't have you'll find no one there anymore i've been <laughs> sorry there. but <laughs> it's cool the theoretical halls the zoom channels of etsy you know i do you still have your new york office that i went to we have our headquarters in new york that's okay, that's okay. Uh, we can talk about that if you want I, i'm no, asking okay. the team think of that as a conference center where we bring our teams together from all over the country all the time so they're meeting in person at some regular cadence but but you know, I think what you'll hear a lot of, like in every meeting, is all the ways we fail our customers today. Like all the ways we could be doing a lot better for them. And if we keep starting with what is the customer need and what is the best way for us to serve that customer better, I think that's always a good guiding light. I mean, when I got to Etsy, you know, Etsy had so many good things, like so many good things. But one of the things that was not so healthy was we we're very focused on how to be different. How are we different? What's our unique way of solving this? And I told the team, I'm just not interested in different. I'm only interested in better. So if you can't convince me why your solution is better than conventional, nine times out of 10, 95 times out of 100, conventional wisdom is actually right. And so like- I'm basically with my team, I'm, I'm all the way at different is not better. Like Sometimes different is bad. Like, different with I'm, intention. I'm like, you, know, you better have a damn good reason why we're doing it different. Because have a good reason. Yeah. That's all. Like if you're never different, then you're obviously a copycat of something. Like that can't. The world doesn't need the carbon copy of something. You have a good reason. Different with intention. Why do you have a reasonable belief that this is better? And so, well, you so know, we just copy Twitter and Apple. <laughs> How do they do that? Let's just do it that way. Well, like you know, Etsy was not in the cloud. And when I asked why Etsy was not in the cloud, it's because we're Etsy and we're handmade. And because we're handmade, we should do everything ourselves. It's not a good reason. So, you know, like- Do you grow your own coffee There's a lot beans? of other people who, you know, who are in the cloud and it seems they've run the math and it seems to work for them. And then I got a lot of spreadsheets telling me why we save money, but those spreadsheets made a lot of like non-obvious assumptions. Like we would pay list price. Well, nobody really pays list price. You always negotiate. There were like some, like, it felt like the team was very much trying to lead to an answer. So we went through a lot of work together to think differently. But that, Etsy's not like that anymore. I think we're very focused on what is the best available way to meet a customer need. And I think that's a good North Star. So what, 
I imagine that you, just like many others like we are, is thinking, what is your customer need for ChatGPT? Many. I, you know, it's funny. I was, How I was, are we going to ChatGPT our Etsy? The, someone was asking me recently, like, do I think it's any different than crypto? Or Well, first, I've owned Bitcoin for a long time, and that investment's worked out okay for me, so I'm not trying to cast aspersions. But... And I like Bitcoin as a store of value, and we could have a whole separate conversation. Most of the most of the use cases I've seen for crypto don't meet a customer need, or at least don't meet a customer need better than available solutions today. ChatGPT, I can rattle off five immediate ways that it can help us serve our customers better. Can you give us a couple obvious ones if they're not secrets? Well, you know, obviously member support is going to become more productive, and not just for us, like for our sellers. You know, they're very busy making and they want to provide good customer service. Making them better at giving customer service. Absolutely. Could we pre-populate an answer for our sellers that she can look at, edit in her, you know, and then send to save her time? She gets asked over and over again many of the same questions and ChatGPT could probably help. But I'm particularly interested in search. I'm particularly interested in getting more context. So someone shows up at Etsy and they say, like, you know, wooden toy dinosaur. Like a very common query at Etsy. What I'd rather they write is, I'm going to a birthday party for a five-year-old. Can you please suggest some gifts? That um, sounds pretty ChatGPT yeah. to me. That'll be really cool. I can't wait. And we're going to serve them so much better when that happens. Yeah. And, oh, of course, our developers are going to become more productive. Yeah. Um, I've been having a lot of fun with it. I've really challenged myself as I... As I you know, part of my job anyway is obviously to try to understand new technologies and other things. And so I often give myself these little challenges of, you know, trying to use things, trying to do new things. And so I'm trying to just use it every day to answer a question, to, to prep for something, to do to, And I, and then I just keep reminding everybody, myself and everybody else, like, this is just the free beta. I know. Like, there's going to be chat GPT-4. Four, everyone's you know, like, like, coming it's months gonna, is going to be dramatically like, yeah, better. It's yeah, I think it's, this is not a crypto bubble. I think as, as much as we think about 2020 as an inflection point in, in, in history, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we will look back at the pandemic and that was an inflection and it absolutely was. I think we're going to look back at 2023 and the advances we made in AI and say that was maybe a bigger inflection point for humanity. I, I believe that too. I believe that too. Time's flying. I, this, and I mentioned that this is kind of a new format for us both doing it in person, recording it for our podcast, not having it be open to the public, having it be just our, our really our tight community here in the audience. So as part of that, we asked them for some questions ahead of time, and I've got a couple good ones here. JJ from Viewer Ready, I don't know, is JJ here? JJ, awesome, JJ. JJ asked, man, talk about just time and other things. I met JJ two, two generations ago of other companies and other things. But AJ asked, now that you've sustained a successful company, what would you go back and tell yourself now during that first year that you wish you knew during the first year? And what would you have done differently? My first year as an entrepreneur, like Evite days or like Etsy days? I would say kind of like the most of it. The early days, yeah. So Evite days. Well, for me as a leader, focus a lot less on solving problems and a lot more on defining success and constraints for the team. I define my success far too much based on my own ability to solve a problem when I was a younger leader, which was not very empowering of my team. It didn't unleash their full creativity, and it was a giant waste of my time. So I would say that was the biggest learning for me. I try to spend my time 
and I've told my, you know, gen generally told my team what I want to be doing is I want to be writing job descriptions and what we call HECs, hopes, expectations, concerns, which is like kind of like our kickoff documents for projects and things, which are, you know, it's the requirements, it's the goals, it's the it's those things. That's what I generally want to be spending my time doing. Awesome, Brianna from Enact asked, "What are your thoughts on the metaverse and retail? How are we in the metaverse on Etsy?" I actually think for Etsy, it can be helpful. You know. Our problem, we have 115 million things for sale on Etsy. Like, I don't know how many Costco's you'd have to spend to get to 115 million different things, but like lots and lots. Like, so, and, you know, how's that going to look at my house? And, you know, will it fit in this space? And so I can't imagine a world where you can sort of, like, words are a very difficult sorting mechanism, but the brain, the eye is amazing at looking at large numbers of things and sorting. So I can imagine a world where you can almost like fly over Etsy and say, oh, home furnishings is the area, and then sort of zoom in more and say, I'm actually interested in coffee tables, and then zoom in more and look at the section that's like mid-century modern, and then zoom in more. And, you know, I think that kind of experience for us, you could sort through three million items in 10 seconds in a way that would be very difficult through clicks and keywords. And then the ability to sort of look at what that object might look like in three dimensions. What would an avatar look like, like, like buying clothing online? I, I don't hear a lot of people look with this, but I'd love to have a personal avatar that's like my body shape so that I could try things on to... So many startups pitched me that over the that. past 10 years. It's like yeah. someday we'll get someday it. Someday it's going to happen. I know. It's a matter of time. Yeah. But those kinds of things, I do have heart. And we're already seeing some augmented reality that's helping. So on Etsy... You can look it up. Yeah, that's up. probably more like the faster answer to it. It's really cool. Yeah. Already, this exists today. You can look at a painting, and then you can point it at a space in your house, and we will show you that space in your house with the painting superimposed. So you can see how that painting is going to look on your wall at scale. And those kinds of things, I think, are already helping our customers solve real problems. So I, I saw a question submitted here from Pamela Valdez. Is Pamela here? Or is, she on video? is she planning to like watch us on video? Pamela lives in Mexico City. All right, she must be going to, she's going to watch us. I was so glad to see her question. And it was one of the ones that I know you, you liked as well. Pamela's, I first met, she took my class at UT Austin. And she's got a great startup in Mexico called Beak.io, which is all about the, it, it's kind of like uh, Goodreads for Spanish speakers. And her question was, can you tell us more about Etsy's strategy of buying a portfolio of apps instead of building everything into Etsy? Yeah, great question. And we have a new office in Mexico. We've got about 130 employees there. Super excited about the talent, amazing talent in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't try to build everything ourselves. So we acquire companies in three different categories. One is capabilities. That's going to make Etsy better. Second is geographic expansion. And the third is category expansion. So for example, we bought a company called Blackbird that really accelerated our machine learning to make machine learning and search a lot better. That's something we did about six years ago. And many of the engineers who worked for Blackbird still work for us today. And that, that really had a, a powerful accelerating impact for us. We acquired, we acquired the assets of a company called Devonda in Germany, which we combined with our German business, our German marketplace, those two marketplaces coming together. One plus one equaled something bigger than two. And that really helped our German marketplace get a lot bigger. And then category expansion would be, we've acquired a marketplace called Reverb, and we've acquired another marketplace called Depop. And both of those are, Depop is resale of clothing, and Reverb is musical instruments. 
And so those brands stand for something very different than what Etsy stands for, but they are two-sided marketplaces that don't touch inventory very much like Etsy. And importantly, they are very aligned with our mission of keeping commerce human. Both of those marketplaces are about keeping commerce human. And so I think the idea that it fits our mission, it's very aligned with our business model, and we have a lot of know-how to help them get there faster, take a successful business and get there even faster. You know, I think there's opportunity as a company gets bigger, you have the opportunity to do those things sometimes. Yeah. Well, there were a bunch more questions, but we are also unfortunately running out of time. In addition to asking in advance for people to submit questions, also as part of this kind of new format we're experimenting with, and I appreciate you being a little bit in my guinea pig here, but very much in the spirit of Capital Factory, we asked, hey, if you got any ideas for Etsy, you know, if ways either, you know, things you think they should be doing or ways that you guys could work with them, let us know. We can't, we're not making any promises, but we got a big list. So we have like a dozen, maybe even a little bit more from any of you of ideas of things that they'd like to do. And so there's no expectation of you other than I'm hoping you'll read them and I'm going to send you that. And if there's anything in there that also looks interesting, it'll be easy. You know, there'll be something that you might be able to forward, but that's because again, what we're always trying to do and we're asking everybody is just who do they need to meet? How can we help them? you know, push their businesses forward. Um, and I'm sure a lot of them will have lots of ideas about how they could do cool things with Etsy too. So we'll try to pass those on as well. And uh, with that, I think that wraps it up. So we're going to turn the lights on and we'll hang out for a bit. But thank you all for joining us so much. Thank you, Josh, for coming down to visit and to spend some time with us here. And it was awesome. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at CapitalFactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show.